Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield infections that tend to come up in the perinatal period. Our discussion will involve congenital infections, such as those caused by the torch pathogens, as well as infections that tend to be contracted during the intrapartum period, such as group B strep, hepatitis B, and HIV. If you find this material helpful, please consider subscribing, as it will really help to get the word out to other students as well. Thank you, and let's get started. Let's begin with the congenital torch infections. But before diving in and discussing the various pathogens implicated here, let's discuss what Torch Syndrome is. Torch Syndrome is the name that we give to a constellation of findings seen in fetuses and newborns that are a result of a congenital infection that is transmitted to the fetus either from the placenta or from direct microbial invasion into the amniotic sac. Newborns born with any of the Torch Syndromes often share similar features, such as fever, jaundice, hepatosplenomegaly, and symmetric intrauterine growth restriction. By symmetric intrauterine growth restriction, I mean that they have small heads, known as microcephaly, as well as small bodies. This is opposed to asymmetric intrauterine growth restriction, which is mostly due to maternal factors and leads to a small body with a normal head size. For further details on intrauterine growth restriction, check out episode 9. TORCH is an acronym that stands for toxoplasmosis, other, rubella virus, cytomegalovirus, and herpes virus. I always love the other category in acronyms like this, but for our purposes, others would be pathogens like syphilis, varicella, parvovirus, and a few others including the recent addition of the Zika virus. As I mentioned, newborns born with torch infections tend to share a lot of common features. I'll try to focus more on the key differences between each of these diseases, including hallmark physical exam findings, radiographic findings, and special clinical considerations that will hopefully help you with those next step type questions that love to show up on the NBME. Let's start with toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis is caused by the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, and is usually contracted by eating undercooked meat, but there is also a lesser association with cat feces and litter boxes too. Toxoplasma is highly prevalent throughout the world, but for most people with healthy immune systems, it causes no problems. But for newborns and populations with compromised immune systems, then we start to run into issues. The classic triad for congenital toxoplasmosis is chorioretinitis, hydrocephalus, and intracranial calcifications distributed in a random fashion throughout the brain. Other than labs, including PCR analysis, if you're suspicious of toxoplasmosis, you're also going to want to order brain imaging. And what is the key CT head finding of toxoplasmosis? 
That's right. It's multiple ring-enhancing lesions. And treatment here will be pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine. Before we move on to the next pathogen, I want to take a moment here because there are a lot of themes that will come up in today's episode, a few of which were just portrayed nicely in toxoplasmosis. So I'll spend a bit of time on them here now so that you'll know what I mean when I mention them later. Firstly, chorioretinitis tends to come up a lot in torch infections. Chorioretinitis is a term used to describe inflammation affecting particular structures of the eye. And to best understand which structures, I'll attempt to break down eye anatomy in a way that will hopefully make it easy for you to visualize, pun intended. When you think about the eye, it helps to think of it as a globe. Inside the globe is mostly just vitreous jelly fluid. But on the outside of the globe, on the crust, we have three concentric layers, each providing their own function. In addition to these three layers, there is also directionality, meaning the anterior, middle, and posterior parts of the eye each have their own specialized structures and functions. The innermost layer of the crust is the retina, with the fovea at the posterior end, and an aperture at the anterior end we call the pupil. The middle layer of the crust is the vascular connective tissue layer called the uvea. The uvea is composed of the iris at the anterior end, the ciliary bodies in the middle, and the choroid in the posterior end, which is responsible for most of the vascular duties of the eye, including nutrient and oxygen supply, as well as thermoregulation and modulation of intraocular pressure. The outer layer of the eye is mostly composed of the white sclera, except for a small, clear, dome-shaped outpouching at the anterior ends we call the cornea, which is responsible for bending light as it enters through the pupil. Hopefully now that I oversimplified eye anatomy, you should now have no problem understanding what I mean when I say chorioretinitis, including what that is and what kinds of implications it could have for vision problems if left untreated. Treatment, by the way, would be corticosteroid eye drops. Secondly, intracranial calcifications are another identifiable feature that should instantly raise your suspicion of a congenital infection. Calcifications in the brain are thought to be due to underlying vascular pathology and are typically associated with neurological deficits such as lethargy, seizures, or focal abnormalities dependent upon the region that is affected. Ultrasound and CT are both very effective imaging modalities in identifying intracranial calcifications, while MRIs are less sensitive. Let's move on now to rubella. Rubella is not to be confused with rubiola, which is the virus that causes measles. Rubella used to be a big deal for pregnant women back in the day, as congenital rubella was associated with a lot of birth defects, including sensory neural hearing loss, congenital cataracts, microcephaly, congenital heart defects like patent ductus arteriosus, and characteristic bluish-purple nodules covering infected infants' bodies described as a blueberry muffin rash. Thanks to vaccination efforts, the United States declared in 2004 that congenital rubella had officially been eradicated in the country. However, there are still about 100,000 cases occurring annually worldwide. And unfortunately, there is no cure. Next up is cytomegalovirus, or CMV, which is another one of those viruses that is ubiquitous in the environment, but usually doesn't cause much harm to those with competent immune systems. Similar to rubella, CMV can also cause sensory neural hearing loss in newborns and is currently the number one cause of non-genetic hearing loss in the United States. Most cases of CMV are asymptomatic, 
but symptoms tend to present several months after birth, which is why we routinely do hearing screens in young children. Sensory neural hearing loss is the hallmark feature of congenital CMV, but also look out for more typical torch syndrome signs, including jaundice, petechiae, hepatosplenomegaly, and intrauterine growth restriction. And on imaging of congenital CMV, you're going to see intracranial calcifications. And do you remember which area of the brain you might expect to see these calcifications? That's right, these will be periventricular, as opposed to the randomly distributed calcifications seen in Toxo. Good. Moving on now to herpes. Much like the other pathogens we discussed, herpes simplex is basically everywhere, with up to 90% of the population being seropositive for HSV type 1, which usually presents with mucocutaneous vesicular lesions above the waist, whereas HSV type 2 is typically below the waist. When contracted in utero, both HSV1 and HSV2 can cause a torch-like syndrome. However, most cases will present after birth, typically as a result of passing through a birth canal with active lesions. For this reason, all pregnant women with active genital herpes lesions at the time of delivery should be advised to have an elective C-section. However, if the infection is diagnosed well before delivery, then treatment is just to give oral acyclovir. About half of all neonatal herpes cases are limited to the skin, mouth, and or the eyes, with the rest of cases affecting either the neurological system or disseminated across multiple organ systems. When herpes affects the eye, this is called interstitial keratitis and is characterized by inflammation of the anterior part of the eye with associated neovascularization of the cornea visible as branching dendritic projections on fluorescein slit lamp examination. In the central nervous system, herpes can cause encephalitis and present with seizures, lethargy, and focal deficits, with the key lumbar puncture findings of lymphocytic pleocytosis and the presence of RBCs. The disseminated form of neonatal herpes affects multiple organ systems and may present as a bacterial culture-negative sepsis. Be aware that both HSV encephalitis and the disseminated infection may or may not co-present with the typical vesicular lesions, obfuscating the diagnosis. Therefore, blood and cerebral spinal fluid PCR assays should be done on all patients with a suspected disease, regardless of how it manifests. Treatment for all manifestations of neonatal herpes is going to be with IV acyclovir plus suppressive oral acyclovir for at least six months. All right, now let's move on to the other category, starting with syphilis. Congenital syphilis is caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum and is passed to the fetus in utero by mothers who acquired the STI either before or during pregnancy. Newborns with syphilis may have some of the typical torch features as well as the classic characteristic maculopapular rash on the palms and soles of the feet, as well as something called snuffles, which is a very thick mucus from the nose containing spirochetes. So for this reason, it's never a good idea to touch newborn snot without first putting on gloves. Routine prenatal screening for syphilis should be done in all pregnancies and consists of both treponemal and non-treponemal antibodies testing. Traditionally, we used to first use a cheaper test, either the VDRL or RPR, to screen for the detection of antibodies directed against non-treponemal antigens, which is why sometimes we get false positives in conditions such as certain autoimmune disorders. Then, after the non-treponemal test, we would do a confirmatory test which would identify antibodies directly targeted against the bacteria. 
In modern practice, however, diagnostic testing has gotten a lot less expensive and more readily available. Therefore, the old method of only doing the treponemal antibody detection after the non-treponemal test is less relevant these days. In addition, we can also directly visualize the spirochetes by collecting samples of skin lesions or snuffles from the nose and directly viewing them using dark field microscopy and direct fluorescent antibody detection methods. Once syphilis is detected, either prenatally or postnatally, treatment is going to be with penicillin. But, oh wait, what if you detect syphilis in a pregnant woman who was allergic to penicillin? What would you give her then? That's right, you would gauge her level of allergen severity and then give it to her anyway, only sensitizing the patient if they had an anaphylactic reaction in the past. And be aware of the transient Riesch Herxheimer reaction characterized by relapsing fevers in the 24 hours following penicillin administration as the dying spirochetes release their toxins. If congenital syphilis is missed or left untreated, persistent inflammation will eventually lead to several characteristic features of late congenital syphilis, including a saddle nose deformity, anterior bowing of the shins, Hutchinson teeth, which is when adult teeth grow in with jagged edges, sensory neural hearing loss, and interstitial keratitis. Congenital varicella, or chickenpox, doesn't usually occur in the United States anymore as most pregnant women would have already either been vaccinated as a child or had the infection already. When varicella does get vertically transmitted, the infection will look a lot like other torch infections except for the classic vesicular lesions and a dermatomal distribution. Congenital varicella can affect multiple parts of the body, including the limbs, leading to hypoplasia, the eyes, leading to chorioretinitis or cataracts, the central nervous system, leading to microcephaly and or seizures, as well as the autonomic nervous system, leading to conditions such as neurogenic bladder or GERD. Antiviral therapy with acyclovir is not necessarily indicated at birth as many of the sequelae of congenital herpes infections are irreversible. However, IV acyclovir is indicated for any newborns with signs of active infection. In addition, if a mother develops chickenpox in the days immediately leading up to or following birth, then both mom and the newborn should receive acyclovir as well as varicella immune globulins. And if the varicella infection is affecting one of the mother's breasts, then the baby should avoid breastfeeding from that side. Next up is lymphocytic choreomeningitis. Lymphocytic choreomeningitis is a virus with a strong association to mice and can cause a syndrome very similar to toxo or CMV infections including typical torch features plus chorioretinitis and a host of neurological conditions like microcephaly, intracranial calcifications, and hydrocephalus. Diagnosis can be made by detecting antibodies in the cerebral spinal fluid, and no treatment exists other than supportive measures such as ventricular shunts to relieve the hydrocephalus. Parvovirus B19 is, a D is, parvovirus B19 is the DNA virus that causes Fifth's disease, or slapped cheek fever, in school-aged children. When pregnant women contract the virus, the baby is almost always born asymptomatic. However, in cases where the fetus is affected, the virus will act by blocking erythropoiesis, and this can lead to profound anemia, stillborns, and hydrops which is an abnormal accumulation of fluid in two or more body compartments, such as pulmonary edema, pericardial effusion, or ascites. There is no specific treatment for parvovirus, 
but supportive management may include blood transfusions to the fetus via cordocentesis as a way to improve the anemia. Also be aware that if an older child with sickle cell or some other hemoglobinopathy acquires parvovirus infection, then there is a risk for the development of an aplastic crisis, with the only treatment being bone marrow transplantation. Trypanosoma cruzi is a parasite endemic to Latin American countries and causes Chagas disease. Although congenital T. cruzi infection may sometimes cause a torch-like syndrome, the overwhelming majority of infants will have an asymptomatic birth. However, since they are infected, it places them at risk of development of Chagas disease later in life. Therefore, all newborns and pregnant women found to have T. cruzi should be treated with benzonidazole or nifurtamox. And the last congenital infection we'll discuss today is Zika virus, which is relatively new to the list of torch infections when it made headlines circa 2015 for causing a lot of babies in Brazil to be born with microcephaly. I don't have a lot of other key differentiating features to report on for Zika other than an association with Guillain-Barre syndrome in some adults with the disease. Alright, now that we've covered torch infections, let's shift our focus towards infections of the perinatal period, starting off with Group B strep. Group B strep, or GBS, is the most common infectious cause of neonatal morbidity and mortality in the United States. GBS likes to colonize in the lower GI and genitourinary tracts, and thus the neonate is at risk for contracting the bacteria as a result of passing through the birth canal and may subsequently develop sepsis. In addition, GBS may also ascend up the birth canal and increase the risk of fetal injury or preterm labor. All pregnant women should be tested for GBS colonization using a rectal vaginal swab at 35 to 37 weeks, and if positive, receive intrapartum penicillin G. There are also a few other indications to give intrapartum penicillin G, and these include women in preterm labor, women whose GBS status is unknown, and women with prior pregnancies that were affected by GBS. And what do you do if a woman who is GBS positive happens to be allergic to penicillin? Would you want to sensitize and administer penicillin anyway? The answer is no. That would be the strategy for treating syphilis, but GBS tends to be susceptible to many other antibiotics. So if they have a penicillin or cephalosporin allergy, then you should give something else like clindamycin plus erythromycin or just prescribe based on culture sensitivities. Next up is hepatitis B. This is also something that we screen for in pregnant mothers, but usually at the first prenatal visit. If you need a refresher on all things to remember for prenatal visits, check out episode 2. Hep B is actually unable to cross the placental barrier, therefore transmission is only able to take place during birth or some other event where the placental barrier is compromised. So for hep B screening labs, let's say we have a pregnant woman in the office and we ordered some routine hepatitis serology panels, including hep B surface antigen, antibodies against hep B surface antigen, and antibodies against hep B core antigen. The way I like to remember how to interpret hepatitis serology panels is to just think about it intuitively. The hep B virus has two main components. The core is in the middle and the surface is surrounding it. The Hep B vaccine tricks our immune system into creating antibodies against the Hep B surface antigens. So if you have antibodies against the core antigen, then this means your immune system has already encountered the actual virus at some point instead of just the vaccine. If antibodies against core antigens are present in the absence of any surface antigens, then this means your body has already successfully dealt with the virus and you do not have an active infection. 
I hope that made sense, but feel free to listen to it again if you have to. But just in case, let's break it down a bit further with a few practice scenarios. If they have positive antibodies to Hep B surface antigen, but no actual antigen, then this means they are vaccinated against Hep B. If they have positive Hep B surface antigen, then this means they have an active infection, usually chronic, and may also have antibodies against the core antigen. If they have a negative Hep B surface antigen, but positive antibodies to the core and surface antigens, then this represents a resolved infection. If everything is negative, including the antibodies to the surface antigen, then they are susceptible to infection and should get the vaccine. I hope that helped a bit to elucidate this topic because I know it tends to trip people up, but I think as long as you think about it this way, then you'll never get the question wrong again. Alright, so if the mom has active hepatitis while pregnant, then you treat it with antivirals. Regardless of whether or not you treat, however, you must also administer hepatitis B immune globulins to the baby once it's born, as well as administer their first routine hepatitis B vaccine, which is usually given to all newborns within the first 24 hours after birth. The reason why we are so vigilant in treating newborns born to Hep B positive mothers is that 90% of babies who contract Hepatitis B will go on to develop chronic infection, so we want to treat this aggressively before it ever gets to that point. Now let's move on to HIV, which honestly I have so much to say about HIV, but we'll just go over the basics for now and save the rest for a future episode dedicated all to HIV. HIV is another virus that we screen for at the first prenatal visit and usually again towards the end of the pregnancy. If HIV is detected, combination antiretroviral therapy should be initiated, including at least one nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, or NRTI, as these are very effective in crossing the placental barrier and offer additional prophylaxis to the fetus. And if the mom has a high viral load at the time of delivery, or if they arrive in preterm labor, then they should also receive intrapartum zidovidine. There are a few things that can increase the chances of HIV transmission to the newborn, and these include other STIs, as these may cause inflammation and facilitate placental transfer, vaginal delivery, therefore a C-section should be scheduled around 37 weeks to HIV-positive mothers, and breastfeeding, which should be strictly avoided in HIV-positive mothers. When the baby is born, they should be immediately tested for HIV and also initiate antiretroviral therapy. And unless they are definitively found to be HIV negative, they should also receive trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim for PCP prophylaxis a few weeks later. Alright, almost done, but before we wrap it up, let me just give a few quick honorable mentions. Intrapartum infections such as chorioamnionitis, associated with prolonged rupture of membranes, can be a cause of significant neonatal mortality and morbidity. And the treatment here is with antibiotics. Listeria is a motile, intracellular, gram-positive bacilli that has a strong association with unpasteurized dairy or deli meats, with treatment here being ampicillin plus an aminoglycoside. UTIs in pregnancy, most commonly caused by E. coli, carry a high risk of ascending to the kidney and causing pyelonephritis. Therefore, all pregnant women should be screened for asymptomatic bacteriuria and treated if positive. If chlamydia is found during pregnancy, it can be treated with azithromycin. If it is left untreated and transmitted to the newborn during childbirth, it can cause conjunctivitis or pneumonia, both of which may be treated with oral erythromycin. 
One association to be aware of here is that newborns receiving erythromycin are at an increased risk for developing hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, so keep an eye out for that as well. And lastly, if gonorrhea is found during pregnancy, treatment is with ceftriaxone. All newborns are also given erythromycin eye drops at birth for prophylaxis against gonococcal eye infections. And that about covers it. Now let's do some practice questions. Question 1. You are examining a 35-week gestational age newborn one day after delivery. On physical exam, you notice jaundice, hepatosplenomegaly, and microcephaly. Bedside ultrasound of the head is positive for calcifications seen distributed randomly throughout the brain parenchyma. Which of the following is the most likely way this pathogen was contracted? A. The mother ate contaminated meat during her pregnancy. B. The mother acquired the pathogen from unprotected sex. C. The mother worked at a daycare throughout her pregnancy. Or D. A cat lived in the home throughout the pregnancy. Answer A. The mother ate contaminated meat during her pregnancy. This newborn with torch syndrome features and multiple randomly distributed intracranial calcifications is a classic presentation of congenital toxoplasmosis, which is most commonly spread by consumption of contaminated meat, although less commonly it is associated with cat feces. CMV, which is contracted via the respiratory tract, would be associated with periventricular calcifications versus being randomly distributed, such as in this patient. Question 2. A 25-year-old G1P0 woman at 39 weeks gestation presents to the emergency department with signs of active labor. Upon questioning, you learn that she has just recently emigrated from South America. On physical exam, you notice multiple vesicular lesions on her torso confined to a single dermatome. Within minutes, the baby is born spontaneously. Other than routine care, which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A. Administer varicella immune globulins alone to the baby. B. Administer varicella immune globulins alone to both the mom and the baby. C. Administer both varicella immune globulins and acyclovir to both the mom and the baby. Or D. Administer the varicella vaccine alone to the baby. Answer C. Administer both varicella immune globulins and acyclovir to both the mom and the baby. This mom had an active varicella infection at the time of delivery. Treatment in this case would be to treat both mom and the baby with varicella immune globulins as well as acyclovir. And I hope you didn't select to give the varicella vaccine to the newborn, as this is a live attenuated vaccine and should never be given to pregnant women or children less than one years old. Question 3. A 21-year-old G1P0 woman at 14 weeks gestation is in your office for a routine prenatal visit. She is concerned because she accessed the results of her prenatal labs on the online portal and saw that she was positive for a hepatitis B lab. You review her serologies and reassure her that this result is indicative of a prior vaccination against hep B and that it is unlikely she has ever had the hep B virus. Which of the following results is most likely to be associated with this patient? A. Surface antigen negative, core antibody negative, and surface antibody positive. B. 
surface antigen positive, core antibody negative, and surface antibody positive. C. Surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, and surface antibody positive. Or D. Surface antigen positive, core antibody positive, and surface antibody negative. Answer A. Surface antigen negative, core antibody negative, surface antibody positive. Remember, the hepatitis B vaccine is designed to induce antibodies against surface antigen, so this vaccinated patient who never had Hep B before should have antibodies against surface antigen with everything else being negative. Question 4. Which of the following is an absolute contraindication to breastfeeding? A. HIV positive status in the mother. B. Varicella infection affecting a single breast. C. Current smoker. Or D. Newborn diagnosed with breast milk jaundice. Answer. A. HIV positive status in the mother. There are very few contraindications to breastfeeding, and these include HIV positive status in the mother, galactosemia in the newborn, or maternal use of various teratogenic drugs such as chemotherapies and antiepileptics.